Good afternoon, brethren, wherever you may be around the world. I pray that each of you has had a an enjoyable and a special and profitable feast of unleavened bread and the Passover season that uh, we're now finishing. As we begin another new year, as God has designated in his plan, how he reckons time, we are now coming to the end of this period of unleavened bread. And we are now well into the first month of the year as God has revealed it on this 21st day of Nisan. And here we are on the last service of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the afternoon service for 2021. Now, it's always appropriate that we review God's commandment regarding this feast. Let's turn over to Leviticus 23, and we'll read just a few verses here about this time of year that God gave us very specific instructions regarding. But in Leviticus 23, verses, verse 1, it says, And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, and we'll just skip on down to verse 4, and he says, These are the feasts of the Eternal. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month, at twilight, is the Eternal's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Eternal. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread, something you and I have been doing now for the last previous six days, and here on this last seventh day. It says in verse 7, on the first day, of this unleavened bread period, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And so just a few days ago, we celebrated the first holy day of this year. Then in verse 8, that latter part of the verse, it says, And the seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So we are to have a holy convocation. We are to have a commanded assembly. On this particular day, so you and I are here doing just that. We're assembled to worship God on his Sabbath day during his feast. And during this season, especially and often throughout the year, we talk a great deal about growing. Now, what do we mean by that word growing? Well, it's pretty obvious we're talking about growing spiritually. And while that is a, a common topic, a common subject, which is appropriate, but it's especially so at this time of year. Let's note some of the reminders about this idea of growing. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The one verse here, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Paul is talking to the Corinthians, of course, and he's uh, dealing specifically with the issues in that, that congregation at that time. And he's encouraging them to grow, to change. He says here, verse 7, Therefore, purge out the old leaven. And of course, we know that leaven at this particular occasion and 
God's command that leaven is a type of sin. It's a physical reminder that we as human beings are prone to sin and break his law. But he says, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. We, we, we're physically unleavened. And so we are supposed to be spiritually unleavened as well. So purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed. Now, most of the Bibles will say for us. Some don't have those last two words there, but pointing out that Christ was sacrificed. And so because he had died for our sins, we should be putting forth a great deal of effort to change. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to root out the bad habits, to root out the sin that remains in their lives. Uh, They were a young church when Paul wrote this, and there had not been decades of time for them to, to grow and to change. He says to root out the sin in their lives so they could become a new lump. That is a, a new creation, a new servant of God, that they could become pleasing to him. Over in Second Peter, we find a, sim- a similar admonition. Second Peter chapter 3. Get over to Second Peter, out of First Peter. Second Peter chapter three, the last two verses of this epistle from Peter, verses seventeen and eighteen. He says, You therefore, since you know this beforehand, what Peter has been explaining a number of things to them that they needed to be careful, and that there would be difficulties, there would be a reward, there would be some long suffering that they had to go through. But he says, Since you know this beforehand, you've been warned. Beware lest you fall, also fall, from your own steadfastness. That He's telling them they, they've been steadfast up to that point. They had been diligent. They had been steady. But he said, be careful lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, that we must always be on guard. And rather than fall from our steadfastness, rather than do that, he says, grow in, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory of both now and forever. So we're to continue to, to increase and to grow in his favor, that is, in his blessings, and becoming like Jesus Christ, understanding his character, his righteousness, and endeavoring with great effort, with great diligence, to become like Jesus Christ. He's saying here that we should never become self-satisfied with where we are spiritually. We can recognize we are growing, we are changing, but at any given time, we want to be diligent to keep growing, not become satisfied with where we are and accept our, our condition as status quo and it's maybe good enough. No, it's, we have room to grow then what where we are is certainly not good enough. Back in second or back in Ephesians chapter four. In Ephesians chapter four we find an admonition regarding this. In Ephesians chapter four, we'll read verses eleven and twelve. 
and then verses 14 and 15. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he, referring to Christ, said he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why did he place men in these various positions in the church, in the congregations? He says here is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. It's for the building up of the body of Christ, which is his church. So he put ministers there, here, for that particular reason. That He says in verse 14 then, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So we are to not, again, be satisfied with status quo. We want to continue changing and be careful. He says, we don't want to remain children. We want to grow. We want to where we're not bothered by every wind of doctrine. And in many cases, because of the pervasiveness of the Internet and the ease with which people, ministers, false ministers, can preach to people over the TV, over the Internet, that this is sort of, you might say, every wind of doctrine. We might say there is a whirlwind of doctrine out there in the world for people by which people can be deceived. So he says that we aren't to remain spiritual children. Do not remain that way, influenced by the slight or the cunning craftiness of men. Over in Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, read verses 9 through 14. Paul is taking a, a certain amount of umbrage with the church in, in Jerusalem, with the Hebrews, and he points out something that with which they need to deal and with which they, on, on matter that they need to work. In verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 9 says, And having been perfected, referring to Christ, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. He's giving them a fairly strong admonition that there's a lot of things to be discussed but we can't do that right then because they've grown dull in of their hearing. They're not as teachable. Maybe they'd become apathetic after the years they'd been in the church. It's just in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, this should be a reality, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use and practice serving God have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
So some of the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians in Judea and Jerusalem, should have been teachers. Instead, they needed instruction in some fundamentals. And he refers to that as his fundamentals as milk that uh, easily digested, easily understood, perhaps, and pointing out that they needed some, some basic training, some basic education. And many of them should have grown spiritually by that time. Many of them had been in the church for upwards of 30 years. And uh, Peter was using, or uh, Paul was using the milk in that context of being uh, not deep spiritual training, education, and changing. But Peter uses the milk, the word milk, in a different context. So point out his thoughts in First Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Breaking into the middle of, of a thought, of the thought as Peter has begun the sentence. He says, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, in talking about the milk of the word, Peter here is not using that in the same context as Paul in the book in, in Hebrews. He's talking about something that's pure, the milk of the word, that this is the pure truth, the pure teaching. That we as new, as newborn babes desire this. So he's, he's thinking especially about how we, uh, what we call the first love. That he's saying that this desire for the truth, this hunger for deeper understanding should remain with us. We should cultivate that. We should, uh, care for it, make sure that it's there and yearn to know more than we know, understand more than we understand. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, if, if we've come to understand God's way of life and how, how merciful and loving Jesus Christ and the Father are, then we want to become more like them. And to the point, he points out here in verse 5, to the point that his living stones are built up a spiritual house. We're no longer just a foundation. We're no longer just part of the uh, framing of the house. All of that's important. But he says what we should be doing is being built up a spiritual house, a complete house. A house is ready to be occupied. A house is ready to be used. And he says a spiritual, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, that we can produce the kind of fruit that God is going to consider acceptable. He's going to approve of that. And, and the things that we have changed, We've grown, and so we should have and maintain to the best of our ability that first love. And it says here that we grow thereby. The margin points out that this is grow by, this is up to salvation, that we continue on this path of spiritual growth until God, through Jesus Christ's return, we actually achieve salvation, that God grants that to us because of the kind of lives we have lived and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. We are not, again, just a foundation or 
part of the framing. We are now part of a complete body, a complete house prepared for use in God's kingdom. So these days of unleavened bread are defined by our diligent and concerted effort to root sin out of our lives. We went through the preparation of getting ready for Passover. We have sermons for several weeks leading up to Passover to be examining ourselves. This is something that obviously should be a consistent part of our lives, to root out sin. We have this, at Passover time, we have this elevated awareness of our nature, of our tendencies, of whatever carnal traits that might remain in our lives. We want to change those things and grow spiritually as Christians. So those scriptures talk about growth, talk about us growing spiritually as Christians. But how and are you and I to do that? What are some of the things and some of the steps we can take that will actually enable us to make progress to where we actually grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, this afternoon, as we close out this holy day and we celebrate this seventh day of unleavened bread, I want to discuss seven points that are necessary if you and I are to grow spiritually. Now, as is usually the case, these seven points that I've compiled for the sermon, they're not the end all of such a list. Others might combine some of them. Others might add to them, and maybe even some might uh, consider uh, reducing the number one way or the other. But regardless, the, the nature of these points are all necessary for us to grow spiritually. So point number one, what we've been doing for the last several weeks, but now what we must continue to do is we must continue to examine ourselves spiritually. And when we see faults, we must be willing to admit to ourselves and to God that we have a problem. Or each one of us must say to ourselves, I have a problem. I have a fault. I have a bad habit, this wrong habit. And whatever we see, we can be well aware that God also sees that. Let's, let's turn back to the book of Psalms. In Psalm 90, Psalm 90, just one verse here, verse 8. Psalm 90, verse 8. Margin says this, or the heading says this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. But he says here in verse 8, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Now, what God is telling us here is that he has set our iniquities. He can see them. He is aware of them, our secret sins in the light of his countenance, that there's nothing in our lives that is hidden from God. He sees all the good. He sees all the mediocre, and he sees all the bad. He's aware of every element of our character and our conduct. Some of those, he says, our secret sins, he sees even though we don't. Some of, some of these matters are not yet known to us. 
or someone, sometimes we might uh, say, we may know personally, but we're also careful to perhaps hide those from other people. But regardless, he's telling us here, we must continue to ask God for help to see ourselves as he sees us. And we want to know the truth, sometimes the unvarnished truth from God to help us see just how our ways are unpleasing to him, our ways are unacceptable to him. He says back in Psalm 19, Psalm 19, The heading tells us this was a psalm of David. But in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13, David writes, Who can understand his errors? Who can truly, accurately, and thoroughly see himself for what he is? And he says, Cleanse me from my secret faults. They're not secret from God. Their secret from David is what he was saying, and the secrets that we, things we may not see in ourselves, God certainly can. And so David prays and begs. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Help me not do anything deliberately or willingly reject your way of life. Let them not have dominion over me. Help me understand how to resist the wrong way of life, the wrong things to do, the wrong things to say. Help me have uh, the self-control that these things don't have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression, of real serious problems. In Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my concerns, my worries, my fears, my shortcomings, and see if there is any wicked way in me. Examine me thoroughly, very carefully. And if there's anything in there that needs to be needs to come out, anything in my way of life that needs to be rooted out, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way that will help me overcome those matters, to change and to grow spiritually. So he's begging God for his help. And if our self-examination has revealed to us that there are specific changes you and I should make, then we should admit it. To ourselves, I have a problem, and not downplay it, not minimize it. And we can, brethren, we can do that. Often we can rationalize around what we know to be true about ourselves. We hear discussions in sermons, or a Bible study, or perhaps we read about a matter in the Living Church News, one of those articles and recognize in those words that we either hear or we read, we can recognize something about ourselves that needs to change, and yet promptly 
minimize that in our minds, that it's perhaps not that big a deal. Uh, I'll worry about that tomorrow, and we'll not take it as seriously as we ought, and so we fail to grow as we ought. James tells us about this in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So we can deceive ourselves. Jeremiah tells us what our hearts are like. They're desperately wicked. They're deceitful. And we can actually sometimes be blinded to our our own faults. We can be blinded to our attitudes. And we can sympathize with our own circumstances and make excuses for ourselves. But he tells us in verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, we will be hearing a sermon. Again, what we read in the Living Church News, what we hear in a Bible study, if we hear these words being hearing the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. We can hear these things discussed in a sermon, and right after church, become engrossed in our fellowship, and go home and back to our normal routine and simply not pay heed to the very things we heard given in a sermon. And God says we don't want to do that. We don't want to be forgetful of what kind of man we were. You and I need to become a new lump, rooting out the old leaven. So we need to admit we have the problem. We don't like what we see, and maybe unconsciously or maybe not so unconsciously, choose to forget about it, hoping maybe the problem will just go away. But it doesn't. It doesn't do that. We should be honest with ourselves. And let's face it, brethren, sometimes we just aren't really honest with ourselves. We must face reality about our spiritual weaknesses. Back in Second Samuel, we have a, a stark lesson given to us in Second Samuel, chapter twelve, here's a this is a familiar account for us. Second Samuel chapter twelve, and just the first five verses of the chapter, and here we know this is about David. We read the first five verses, Second Samuel 12, verse 1. Then the Eternal sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and they grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. It just a, a real special pet. And the traveler came to the rich man 
who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring men, which was the custom at the time. One on a journey could simply ask for the hospitality of a, uh, a, a local resident, and they were to feed them and, and house them for the evening. And he said he refused to do that for out of his own flock. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Rather than take of his wealth and his riches, he took the one item away that was really very dear and precious to this poor man. And when Nathan uses this analogy and relates the analogy to, to David, David's anger, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He, he became thoroughly indignant about hearing this story and assuming it to be true. Nathan had related something that had really happened. He said to Nathan, as the eternal lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Shall surely die. He was indignant at this simple analogy about someone taking a physical possession from another man who had much less. Now, David didn't see himself in this analogy. He didn't recognize the depth and the the stark and gross inequity between his sins and those compared to this particular man. Now, of course, God showed him what he was talking about. Nathan explained this, said, you are the man. You've done something that's far worse than what this man would have, would have done in that particular story. Now, are we to think that David did not know that what he had done was, was wrong, was, was heinous, was it an egregious sin? Well, of course, I think it's obvious that David knew what he had done was wrong that in committing adultery with Bathsheba, that was wrong. And what he did to cover it up was wrong because he then had Uriah killed. And I would imagine there were people in the the king's palace, in David's palace, who knew very well what David had done. David was turning a blind eye to his own shortcomings. Whether he wanted to pretend that he wouldn't get caught up, uh, caught in his sin, uh, he simply was going so far, he'd gone so far down the road that he was not dealing with it uh, or dealing with reality as it was. Now, there are a couple other lessons we might learn from this before I go on. One is that one sin, one wrong habit, often leads to another. In this case, David made an egregious error and sin in committing adultery. And rather than change and repent, he decided to hide it. So another sin followed. And that the simple lesson there is that one sin never solves a problem. Sin does not fix previous sin. We have to deal with the sin by changing, by growing. We have to be honest with ourselves. And we have to pray about what we see is the problem and pray for the ability to be candid, to be candid with ourselves and recognize that, yes, this is a problem that we have to work on, we have to change. Now, it might help to write it down, put it in words. There's something about 
writing things out, and I don't mean t- typing them on a on a keyboard, on a computer necessarily, but to write it out and put the matter in words and have that printed word, that written word in front of us that makes it more real. We read that and recognize that just those words are about me. And what, what might they be? I mean, there are any number of things. We you know these matters, the things we need to change, they're gossip. You know, people still on occasion fall prey to losing the self-control and, and spur, uh, blurt out foul language. Uh, perhaps it's a matter of not controlling our emotions in general and we have uh, what's called, we have a temper that uh, we're willing to say inappropriate things. Perhaps it's just a matter of being lazy. We're not good workers. And it's it's one thing to think about it. It's something else to read those words and think that those words are about me. I put them on paper, and they're about me, and there's no escaping that reality. It could be about not having enough prayer and Bible study and losing out on that. Of course, not praying one day is a risk. Because it could lead to two days. It could lead to three days. And before long, it would be a matter of maybe perhaps it's days or weeks that we haven't prayed. We don't want to start down that road. Maybe have financial matters. Maybe we get in a tough situation and we think we can fix that by uh, not tithing for a couple of paychecks. In other words, we can do something wrong to fix a problem. No, that doesn't. Uh, sin is never a solution to a problem. So it could be about how we keep the Sabbath, it could be about time management. But if we analyze it and we meditate on it, write it down, then we can begin to see ourselves in more clear terms. Make If you do write it down, you make a list of things that you want to change. You know, at the first of every calendar year, people talk about New Year's resolutions. And in principle, there's nothing wrong with that. And as we go through Passover season and unleavened bread, we can uh, write down the changes we want to make. And if the list is rather long, it's it's intimidating, it's daunting to think there are that many things need to be changed. But we can write down some things that are really important to us we know need to be changed and then prioritize them because we can't change everything at once. And especially if we've been in the church for years with a lot of the basics we know, and there are things with which we've been dealing for a long time, and we want to prioritize them. And as we write down these these things, then we want to be challenging to ourselves, knowing that by becoming this real with our self-examination, that we are putting pressure on ourselves to overcome. And sometimes we're we're afraid of failure. But we'll come to that in just a moment. But we shouldn't be easy on ourselves. And I'll just say critical in each and every one of these points, as we go through the seven of them, that we have to be praying about these matters, and we have to ask God for the ability to ask or to admit to ourselves our shortcomings and to be real careful to be honest with ourselves. And write down, I have a problem. 
I've done something wrong. I'm doing something wrong. Too often. I have a fault. So point number two, when we write these things down, we come to the, this reality that I must deal with it, then we need to repent. Just simply ask God for forgiveness. Over in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, the comfort you and I can have by challenging ourselves is quite simple. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are, again, there are things we do wrong that we, we don't see yet. But if we're trying, if we're working on ourselves, if we are challenging ourselves to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and grow in the character of Jesus Christ, and we recognize our faults and we tell God we are sorry, he says he's faithful. He, he can be absolutely trusted to say you're forgiven. The sin is not okay. He's not going to say it's okay. God would say you're forgiven. Now it's okay because it's past. It's been blotted out. And he will cleanse us, work on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He is going to help us progress. He's going to help us change. He's going to help us grow in the grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so a deep, sincere regret, it's a prerequisite to change and to spiritual growth. Let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 6 and just look at something that will help us determine just how much our minds are like the mind of Jesus Christ and the mind of God the Father. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, verse 16 says, These these six things the Eternal hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So here, just as we've read many times, there are seven things that God says he hates. So as we analyze what what are the things that uh, should help us be repent, repent, uh, repenting of, of doing these things or looking at the world around us, we can ask ourselves, do we hate the same things God the Father hates? Do we have a deep emotional feeling that these things are wrong and not good, not good for me, not good for mankind, and brings out in the tribulations that we see in the world around us and ask ourselves, do we love the same things God loves? The goodness, the kind, being kind and gentle and being meek 
and not speaking harsh words, to praying for our enemies, the kinds of things that God holds dear and expects us to learn to love the same things that he loves. Over in 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 9, it says, for now, for now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, because he's writing now to follow up on 1 Corinthians when he was dealing with them in a stern manner for the misconduct that was uh, far too rampant in the, in the congregation. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. In other words, there wouldn't be stronger correction or stronger punishment forthcoming from Paul if, if they had not changed. It says in verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So we can ask ourselves, do we look at the wrong things in our lives, and do we have the godly sorrow? The real deep regret is going to enable us to give us the incentive, give us the, the, the energy, give us the, the will to change those things. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, God tells us, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. We don't think the way that God does, nor are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is the challenge you and I face, is not accepting anything less than the mind of God and the mind of Jesus Christ. We don't want to make excuses for our, ourselves, we, we do not want to minimize our, our wrong actions and, and wrong thoughts. We want to ask God to help us face these in reality, and then we need to repent deeply and sincerely so that we can have the energy in order to change. Then point number three is once we see these things, we really have to make up our minds. We're going to do something about it. So one must commit to change. Now, that's, that's really nothing more than the vow that you and I made at baptism, that you and I would pursue diligently the, the way of life of God and the way of developing his mind, his perspective. So we have to make this decision to truly deal with the problems or the characteristics of the traits that you and I have identified that we have to make this decision, this resolve, to do something about it. Now, where do we get that? Again, we're still human. We have our challenges. Over in Philippians, 
chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, so they weren't obeying the things to do that they were been taught because Paul could see them. Paul's now gone, and they're still obeying. He says, but now much more in my absence. He tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So this attitude of resolve, this determination to change, this this will to do something about it, is actually a gift from our Father through his Holy Spirit. And we should be asking, as I mentioned, prayer is a major part of everything we're discussing today. We should be asking God for that kind of determination, that kind of resolve to do something about this. Back in Isaiah chapter 50, we have an interesting scripture. Isaiah chapter 50, and the way that it's worded, It's, it's, uh, your Bible may, may show this. Isaiah chapter 50, and it's again verse 7. This is marked, at least in my Bible, as a prophecy about Jesus Christ, and it's certainly applied to Jesus Christ. But I want us to think about this first in terms of it applying to us. When we make this resolve to serve God and to change and to grow. Verse 7, he says, For the eternal God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. I'm not going to come to regret this. I'm not going to be embarrassed at some point later in my life. I'm going to realize I can I can grow, I can change. God will help me. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint saying that I have determined I am going, with God's help, I'm going to do something about this fault, this habit, this trait that needs to change. And the latter part of the verse is, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Absolutely confident that the will of God will become our will through the power of his Holy Spirit if we commit irreversibly to change that, if we're going to work on it. We're going to not allow that problem to dominate my life. Over in Romans chapter 6, Paul, words it this way, Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, Romans 6, verse 11, says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed to sin. That I've been forgiven. Christ paid the penalty. I'm not going to die. And I must then pursue righteousness in God's way of life. But we are alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have 
no choice but to serve God. We're alive in order to be his servant, in order to do his work, in order to change and become like Jesus Christ and like God the Father. And therefore, in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you. With God's spirit and God's help, we can say, I am not going to let sin reign and dominate my life. We, with his help, that can be changed. For we, you, are not under law. We're not under the penalty of the sin anymore. We have been promised something differently. He says, but we're under grace. We have been forgiven. We, we know that God will help us continue on this path of righteousness. So we must commit to change knowing that ultimately, with God's help, Success will will prevail. We'll have, prevail. We'll have success in changing that. So point number four. So if we commit to change, then how do we? What do we then do to go about doing that? We analyze, have to analyze the problem. Meditate on the problem. What exactly is the nature of the problem? How does it happen? When does it happen? What? What is it, what's the nature of the circumstance? Does it involve a situation at work? Is it a matter, physical matter that affects your spiritual concerns? Is there something wrong in the neighborhood with your neighbors? Anything that could be provoking a wrong attitude? Does it involve even one's choice of friends? Friends that might not be in the church. Maybe does it involve people in the congregation? The Paul tells in his writings that we should not judge one another in terms of condemning them, but if someone is unruly, in what he puts in one, one way, one word, that we don't spend extra time with them. So we have to analyze those matters. When does the problem of the temptation present itself? Uh, does it happen at night? Uh, does it happen when I drink too much alcohol? That, which is wrong. And doing that often leads to doing something wrong. In Proverbs 13, verse 20, it tells us that we are to pick our friends carefully and the ones with whom we associate, ones that are going to influence our lives. Proverbs 13, verse 20, says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. We want to associate with those that are going to help us in our struggles to become like Jesus Christ. They're going to be good examples, the kind of individuals that will encourage us and help us. But the companion of fools will be destroyed. So we have to be careful who are our friends. And that, of course, that's, that would apply much more 
with how we associate with people that are not in the church. Because in the church, we want to encourage each other. We do not want to be judgmental all the time. We do not want to, we want to be careful to care for and help and serve each other. Earlier in the chapter here in verse 16, he says, every man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. So a prudent man again analyzes what's going on in his life. Why did something happen the way it happened? Had a friend in college many years ago, he made, he talked about getting in a, a bad attitude and a bad, bad state of mind. And he could realize he's, that he didn't start out that way that day. He had prayed and he'd studied that morning and he didn't start out with being discouraged or being upset, being bothered by something. And he would think back through his day was, when did this happen? What, what had occurred that would change his mind, his state of mind from that he had had in the morning when he was studying and praying and starting the day with the mind of Christ, the mind of God. What happened that changed that? And then he could deal with the situation and the circumstance. Over in, back in chapter 4 of Proverbs, back in chapter 4, verse 14, says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. In other words, don't, don't start down the wrong way. We can usually recognize temptation and sin before it even happens. We can see that this is fraught with spiritual danger. And when we see that, we don't want to start down that path. Verses 25 through 27 says, Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Watch where you're going. We should be watching where we go each day. The, the steps, not li- some literal steps, but figurative steps. We're, what we're doing, any activity we're undertaking, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Now, that's a matter of looking and analyzing what might be the end result of this activity or whatever we're, we're doing. Look for, we want to consider the end result of that choice we're about to make. And I have had circumstances where someone has come to me as, as a minister and made the comment, I don't know how this happened. And usually what happened and what was being discussed was the culmination of a series of events. It was the, the, the end result. And then discussing the matter, knowing that at some point prior to that, there had been a decision that was made, was unwise, and maybe even the individual knew that it was unwise, but did it anyway, thinking it's not that big a deal. And one matter, led to another one, one action led to another, and ended up in a place that was undesired, even by that individual. Because I don't know how it happened, but yes, they, they do know, if they take the time to think about it, we can figure out 
how it happened. We want to analyze the problem. We want to be asking God for discernment, for insight into being able to evaluate and ask ourselves and determine what, what's going to be the end result. What are going to be the consequences, good or bad, of what I'm about to do? Each and every day to be looking at what can be the end result of our choices. Good choices lead to good results. Bad choices, not so much. So we have to analyze these things and ask God to help us determine what are the characteristics, what, what are the conditions under which these problems that we have show up. Because it may not be something we do every day, but when they, when they do happen, what, what precipitated that event? So once we can see that and analyze those matters, we can work to avoid those circumstances. And we can work to avoid the consequences that come from the bad choices. So point number five is we have to seek help and believe that we will get it. Again, we've had this determination made. We have to believe that there's going to be help available. And we can seek help. And there's multiple ways to do that. We're married. We can go to our spouse. And we can discuss these things about here. This is not the way I want to be. And the spouse can encourage and help guide and pray about the matter. And it's amazing what someone praying for us, how much help we get when somebody, when our, the outgoing concern is for someone else. God hears those prayers and answers them, whether it's for someone being healed or someone changing their lives. We pray about those things. Perhaps it's a close friend. We go to a close friend and we confide in them. And I'll just mention we do need to be careful because some things truly are confidential and we confide in someone and expect them to keep that private. We have to be very sure that we can trust that, that individual to that, to be a true confidant and to pray about it and encourage us when we fall short and help us see ourselves. And, of course, then we need to discuss it regularly with, with God. We can talk to a minister. We're here for counseling. But we can discuss it regularly with God, seeking the help that we need. In John chapter 15, we need to remember this because, again, it's, it's God who gives us the will to do it, to start down this path. In John chapter 15, discussing it regularly with our Creator and with Jesus Christ, Christ tells us here in verses 1 through 7, we read this at Passover, and this is something that you and I must do on a regular basis and believe. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. We do get corrected, we get we get tested, we get tried, because God is wanting us to become more refined, and we want to get more character. Christ tells him, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He's speaking directly to the disciples. But we're clean because of the truth that's been given to us. We read God's word. And then he tells them, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself 
unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, and is withered. And they gather them, and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Well, Christ is saying, if we if we can go to him, and beseech him in faith, that we need the strength to make the changes in our lives, changes that he's revealed to us. We're praying for God to give us insight into our own shortcomings, things we may not see right now that we need to see. If he's revealed these things to us, he says, if you do, if you stay close to me and we beseech him for the help, he says, it shall be done for you. God is going to give us that will. He is going to give us the ability to fight through through the struggle and through this, and he wants us to bear much fruit. In, in Philippians one nine, in Philippians one verses nine through eleven, Paul writes, "In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment." He tells you even love needs guidance. He said, "We in knowledge and all discernment how we how we are to express that love." Verse ten: That you may approve the things that are excellent, not just average, not mediocre, but prove things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, being filled with fruits of righteousness, which are by G, by by which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That the ability to bear this fruit, as Christ said, you can do nothing without me, that with him we can bear, he says here, the fruits of righteousness. We can bear much fruit in what God wants us to do. In Mark chapter 9, and I will I will summarize this, but I'll just give you the verses. Mark chapter 9 Verses 17 and 18, and then verses 23 through 29, it's 17 through 18, and verses 23 through 29, we find the account of where the man was possessed, or the individual was possessed by a demon, and the disciples who had been given the authority to cast out demons were unable to do so. And Christ undertook it, the effort, and of course, the power of Christ, the demon was cast out, and they asked, well, why, uh, why did the demon not come out when we cast out the demon? And Christ said that these things, sometimes this is only done through prayer and fasting. And that was very specific to a demon being cast out. But I just like to point out that some changes in our lives, some changes are very difficult, depending on what our lives have been like in certain in, in times past, some things about us but are slow to change. They're very difficult to change. Take a long time. If you want to look for progress, 
We want to take encouragement when we've made progress on the problem. But we must beseech God for his help and ask ourselves then, are we willing to humble ourselves in fasting and prayer in order to grow? If we've been dealing with something for a long time and recognize that, yes, we've made some progress, but the problem's still with us. I'm still this way, the same way to a degree, the same way I was 10 years ago. I still need to completely work or completely overcome this problem and deal with it and address it. Are we willing to put forth the effort to fast and pray about that, to humble ourselves before God and recognize it? I simply am not achieving as much as you and I both know is expected of me as as as, as your as my God and of me as your servant. So how truly different do you and I want to be by next Passover? By a year from now, are we willing to put forth the effort to seek the help of God in changing these things? All right, point number six. Point number six, and I don't have any particular scriptures to go with this one, but I think this is valuable, is we need to examine ourselves from time to time in relation to this list of items that we've talked, we've recorded for ourselves perhaps, if we actually write it down, but examine ourselves from time to time and take, make a formal inventory, a formal review of where we are spiritually, which we do this every year at Passover. We meditate on these matters and, and take a, make an honest heart-to-heart discussion with ourselves. Am I staying close enough to God? Am I? Is there enough prayer and Bible study in my life? Have I put forth the effort, sincere effort, diligent effort, to change any particular matter that we're working on? Am I focused on the problem, and am I focused on the solution? I've analyzed it, worked on it, and yes, I've made progress. So what do we do with that inventory? We made progress, we keep at it. If we've not made as much, nearly as much progress, perhaps as we would like to make, what do we do? We keep at it. We keep at it. We take this examination of ourselves and just take an inventory of how how far have I come, how much progress am I making, and what what more might I do? In point number seven which flows right from point six. Point number seven is we never give up. We never become satisfied. We never accept failure. Failures, permanent failures are simply not acceptable. We never quit on overcoming a problem. We never quit on that. Let's turn over to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, verse 16. Verse 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times, many times. It's just a uh, a saying, not a number of times. We're not talking about just pure, unequivocal seven times. But many times a righteous man may fall and rise again. But the wicked shall fall by calamity, that 
God is not going to let us be defeated permanently. We're going to stumble and fall. But the only way a righteous man can fall many times is that he gets up every time and goes back into the battle of developing the mind and the character of Jesus Christ and not giving up. In in Psalm 37, Psalm 37, verses 23, 24. Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the eternal. And the margin says established. That the way of life, the steps of a good man are established by God. He will help us guide our lives. And he delights in his way. And though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. We are going to never become perfect in the flesh. We are going to continue to fall. But he tells us here, he shall not be utterly cast down and cast off. If we get back up, he says here, for the eternal upholds him with his hand. God has promised to give us the help that we need. In Luke 22, and I'll just make reference to this now, Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, where Christ talks to Peter and says that Satan, that Satan has desired him and desired all, all of the disciples. But he says, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you made intercession for you. He tells Peter that, because he knows what Peter's going to do, he's, you're going to, you're going to deny me three times. But I've prayed for you and I know that you will come back to me. I know that you're going to be my lifelong servant. That you are going to follow and do my work. He knew Peter would return to him because he made Intercession for him. He prayed for him. And over in Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews 7, verse 25, verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 7, Referring to Christ, says, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost. And the margin on it is these words here, completely or forever. That Christ is able to save completely and forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them that just as Christ interceded for Peter, knowing that Peter would fail him temporarily, he knew that he would return. He says, I have prayed for you. I am protecting you. I am going to nurture you, and I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to see you in my work and into my kingdom. And just as much as he prayed for Peter, 
Paul writes here that Jesus Christ lives always. He always lives to make intercession for those that have been called to God through him, through Christ. Christ makes intercession for you and for me. Victory will be ours. God will help us overcome. He will help us change the things that we need to change. And while we don't reach perfection in the flesh, you and I can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in doing these things. Back in John 15, as we close, John 15, and we can think about this. These are words again that Christ spoke to his disciples. But in the record, he's giving these same words to you and to me. How do we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? We do these things. I've I've gone through the points about admitting that we have a problem. We see ourselves, and we ask God for his mercy. We repent. We commit ourselves irreversibly to deal with that. We commit to change. So to do that, we analyze the problem. We go through the elements that contribute to those shortcomings that we have. We seek help. Our wives, our husbands, our very close confidants, our close friends who pray for us, who encourage us, talk to the ministry. We get counsel from those who could help us. And we always seek help from God. Once in a while, we analyze how well we're doing. We take stock of our current position, self-assessment, and then, again, remind ourselves that we are on a journey in which we're not going to quit. We're not going to give up. And in John chapter 15, verse 16, what Christ told the apostles, disciples who became apostles, he says here, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Christ telling us we've been chosen. Of course, God the Father is the one who called us. We come to him through Jesus Christ. And Christ has chosen these disciples to be his servants with God's inspiration and God's guidance. But he says here that when you go to God and ask through him, we're going to be granted those answers in that prayer. He is going to give us the help that we need. You and I are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there are things that you and I can do to make progress in these matters. Turning to God. Buried in these seven points, which I've made reference to is going through them, buried in these seven points are the four keys that we know are the basic elements of spiritual growth. Prayer, Bible study, meditation, and fasting. We use those elements to deal with these issues that confront us in our spiritual lives. The you and I will grow. We will change. We will become more and more like Jesus Christ. We're becoming servants of God, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and acceptable 
to God the Father.